Would you turn in your Bible, please, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We appreciate Jim and Teresa singing this morning. If I had my way, they'd sing every service. I like the way they sing. Beautiful. Always blesses everybody's heart. 1 John chapter 1. May we pray together. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. So good to be in God's house today. We humble ourselves in Thy presence, knowing that throughout the year of 1986, if there's anything that will be accomplished for eternity, it will have to be because the Holy Spirit moves and has heaven's way in our heart in our church, in our families, in our nation. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open the Word of God to us and someone here today who is not a Christian would come to know the Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. In years gone by before the days of modern radio, the ships would meet at sea. One ship would call to another through a large megaphone, whither bound? And the other ship would return, whether they were going east or west or what their point of destination. And I would just ask this morning on this fifth day of a brand new year, whither bound? Which way are we going? King George VI, in a radio message to the British Empire on December 25, 1939, used the words of many Louise Haskins when he said, and I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light, that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the lone east. When we place our hand in the hand of God and we put our eyes in the book of God and we let our heart be filled with the Spirit of God, we have an unbeatable direction for this year. I would like to read the 10 verses of 1 John chapter 1 as we think about whither bound. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. <clears throat> this then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Sin is a powerful force in human life. Sin is not so much a thing as a way of life. It is a force which has taken hold of human life and rules triumphantly. Sin to the human being is like heroin to the drug addict, alcohol to the alcoholic, lewd pictures to the victim of pornography. Some force has overwhelmed him and taken command of his person. He no longer rules over his own drives and passions. They have come to rule and to ruin him. Sin takes many specific forms, but its root is in the heart. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so John, the last living apostle who knew Jesus in the days of his flesh, the old man writing from the city of Ephesus after the exile on Patmos, perhaps during the reign of Domitian, John, about 90 to 95 years of age, writes to the little children scattered abroad, to the little Christians, the little born-again ones. And when he uses that term, my little children, many times in this little epistle, he is not referring to children that are two, three, four, five, and six years old. He's talking to children that are 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 years old and 90 years old. He's talking to all of us. The term, my little children, is my little born again ones. And even in that little phrase, he is saying, you've decided something about your life. You've decided that sin shall no more have dominion over you. You have decided to put your allegiance and your faith and your confidence in the one who has already overcome sin and death and the grave and hell and is victorious. And in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, is talking to my little children, to Christians, who have made a determination about where they're bound. Sometimes we sing what is called the Baptist National Anthem. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. We call that the Baptist National Anthem because it is 
It, is, it has been sung so many times by believers called Baptists, and we've invited others to go with us to that wonderful land, Emmanuel's land, heaven. Now John, writing to believers who are on their way to heaven, who have already decided whither bound, we, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He has several things to say to us. First of all, he gives a personal exposition, sort of a personal experience. He says, that which we have seen and heard, our hands have handled of the word of life, that's what we declare to you. John says, I knew Jesus. I knew him personally. I, I knew what color his eyes were. I knew what color his hair was. I knew how tall he was. I knew how much he weighed. I knew him personally. There's not a one of us here that can say that. But we're reading the eyewitness account of one who said, I saw him. I knew him. My hands have handled him. And he said, the life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father. As much as I knew him physically, I knew him spiritually more. In another place in 2 Corinthians, he says, henceforth know we him no more physically. We don't know him that way anymore. We know him spiritually. And he says, that which I came to know about Jesus Christ was far, far more than his physical appearance, than what he looked like. And I want to pass on to you that I was there. I really have nothing on you at all. I saw him. I worked with him. I ate with him. I was there all those three years. I was at the cross when he was crucified. I saw him physically, but what I found out spiritually was so much deeper, so much more. He said, one day I go away. It is expedient for you that I go away. If I do not go away, the comforter will not come, but if I go, he will come and he will lead you into paths of truth. And John quoted that in the 14th, 15th, 16th chapter of John. Now, John said, I had a personal experience with Jesus. And I might say that nobody can be called a Christian who does not have a personal experience with Jesus. You can be morally upright, and you can justify yourself over many, many things, but you cannot say, I'm bound for the promised land unless you've had a personal experience with Jesus. And you say, Pastor, what do you mean by a personal experience with Jesus? Do you mean that I must come to the altar and uh, mourn and weep? There's nothing wrong with that. I've known a number of people who were saved at the altar, saved at a mourner's bench. Nothing wrong with that. But that isn't what the scripture says a man has to do to be saved. Many people have been saved there. One day, I knelt with a man out in the cornfield by his old horse or mule team. And that man that had been a hardened sinner called on Jesus to come into his heart. And God saved him. Years went by. I went back to that revival meeting. And that old man was there. And he said, you know, preacher, 
I've been telling people about my experience with Jesus. He said, if I could just get them out in the cornfield by that old mule team, I think they could get saved. Because that's where I was saved. And I think sometimes people feel that way about the mourner's bench. If I could just get somebody there, they'd get saved. And a lot of people have been saved there. But I want to tell you, that's not the only place people can be saved. They can be saved anywhere, anytime, if they'll look to Jesus. And John said, I had a personal experience. And I want to tell you, I think John would jump across the years and stand here in 1986 and say, Whither bound, you cannot go to Emmanuel's land without a personal experience with Jesus Christ. You have to know him. Come to know him by hearing his word, by believing that what he did on the cross was enough to cleanse us from sin, believing that when he died, that was not the end, that three days later he was raised from the grave and he's a living Savior, able to save to the uttermost anybody who will come with his sins. And if you come that way and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Now, John goes on to say, I have a purpose in writing what I'm writing to you. He said, I think he's making an appeal. He said, I like the Christians to have a purpose in their way of life. I like to encourage Christians to have a purpose for life. He says, uh, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. He says, the reason I'm writing this to you is so you can be a joy-filled Christian. Whither bound in 1986? Are you going to be a mulish-faced person? It's always down, always defeated, always discouraged. Perhaps one reason President Reagan was re-elected is because of his upbeat attitude. He's helped America if you do not even agree with his policies. You may not agree with anything he stands for, but you have to agree with his upbeat. And he has an optimistic outlook toward things. He has told people privately that part of the reason for that is he's had an experience with Jesus. And you know, God doesn't want us to go through life defeated, discouraged. There are gonna be some times that would discourage any of us. There'd be some times of defeat there are going to be some times, days may be so long that we seek in vain for the face of our friend divine. We can't even see him. We can't find him. But he's there all the time. He's there all the time. And John says, I write this to you that your joy may be full. So you can be joy-filled. Now there's a difference in happiness and joy. Somebody in your family dear to you dies. You couldn't possibly be happy. You couldn't run around and say, well, let's rejoice, boy. I'm just so happy that this guy died or this woman died. You're not happy about that. I've had several funerals in the last few days. It always drains me to stand by a casket, see precious loved ones come with hearts broken, tears, wishing that somehow it could be different, that they could be here a little longer. You're not happy when somebody dies. But I'll tell you, you can have joy. You can have joy even in that sorrow. And John says, that's, that's what I want to tell you about. 
I'm writing this to you to tell you how to have joy even in the face of hurt and heartache. You may, you may have to face this year with some of the most severe disappointments that you've ever faced in all the years of your life. God didn't promise we would never have disappointments. There may be family problems. There may be financial problems. There may be job problems. And you're not happy when you don't have a job. Nobody can be happy that way. I guess there's some that don't want to work, but not very many. Most people want to work. And when they don't have a job, it's hard to be happy. When you faced a divorce, it's hard to be happy. When you have severe financial problems, it's hard to be happy. The word happy is from the word happiness or happening. And you can hear happening in happy. If things happen to go my way, I have plenty of money. I don't have any disappointments, no financial problems. I don't have any home problems. I don't have anybody that's spit in my face or stab my back. I can say, all right, I'm happy. But what about when all these things go against you? You can't say I'm happy, but you can say there is joy unspeakable and full of glory because Jesus abides in my heart. I've told you a number of times, and I like to tell it, the story of R.A. Torrey. Dr. Torrey and his wife had a precious little boy. They loved him more than the words could ever say. He got very sick. They prayed for him to be healed. God doesn't always answer the prayers like we ask. They prayed for him to be healed. He grew steadily worse. One night they sat up all night around his bedside as he was going through what seemed to be the end. They prayed, they wept. Early in the morning, the little boy closed his eyes in death. And of course they wept, there was hurt. But Dr. Torrey says after a little while, when I cried my heart out, he said that just seems like behind those clouds of tears, the sun began to shine. And there came stealing over my heart a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I reached out to my wife put my hand on hers and I said, it's all right, honey. Jesus needed him. And we're going to give him to Jesus. And he said, joy filled my heart. God gave me that joy. It came from Jesus. Jesus living inside of us. And John is saying, if you have the personal experience of Jesus and he lives inside of you, then no matter what happens, in life, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, preacher, why do you preach like that on this first day of the year? It ought to be an encouraging day. Well, it is an encouraging day, but I want to tell you, we do not know what we will face in 1986. We do not know who will be suddenly taken away. We do not know 
problems that lurk around the corners and the bends in the road. But we know him. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Jesus is able. And so John says, I write this to you that your joy may be full. You can be full of joy, full of glory. Have God's love pouring through your life. And then he says, I want to give you the message. The message that uh, can encourage you, transform your life and the lives of others. First of all, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now that says a whole lot about God. You don't have to read far in the Bible to find a whole lot about God. You open John's Gospel and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You open the book of Genesis, In the beginning God. And here John is saying, God is light. In Him there is no darkness. And then he gives us a test. He says, As you walk out into the unknown of 1986, if you walk in the darkness, and yet you say you have fellowship with God, you lie and do not the truth because God is light. If you walk with God, you're going to walk in the light. And the only way we can walk with God is through prayer and Bible and fellowship with God's people and a continual prayed up state so that no matter what sin comes into our life, we have a contact with God and we leave this with God and bring it to God over and over again. God is light. If you say you know God and you walk in darkness, you lie and do not the truth. God is light. If you can enjoy the sins of the world and all the crumbs that the devil gives you, just little crumbs, while up in the Father's house, we're eating steak and gravy and mashed potatoes and peas and corn and, uh, and, and cobbler and, and uh, uh, jam cake and ice cream and all that. And down there in the devil's den, down in darkness, you're just eking out little old crumbs, a thrill here and a thrill here, and it disappears and dissipates and it hurts you. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. John says, as you walk out in 1986, walk in the light, as he's in the light. And he says, we'll have fellowship with one another. You know, one of the most interesting statements in the whole Bible to me is that verse right there. You would think he'd say, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with God. Well, it's true, we will. But he says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship one with another. Now, when your fellowship is impaired, there's a severe problem. You're not walking together. Somebody's walking on this road and somebody else walking on this road. Somebody else walk, somebody's walking in the darkness, somebody else walking in the light. Children of God, you, you remember Miss Strobridge used to come here and sing, blessed, precious black lady. She'd say, now come on church, come on children, come on church. And she'd sing about going over to Emmanuel's land. Well, I want to say to you, church, you can't walk in darkness and walk with God. Let the Holy Spirit apply what it means to walk in darkness. Grumbling, murmuring, 
two-faced, hypocritical, straddling the fence, being with this group and they all think you're here, being with this group, they all think you're here, pretty soon the two groups get together and find out that you're not much. That's walking in darkness, that's not walking in the light. Walking in lust, the lust of public position, the lust for power, the lust for money, the lust for bodily appetites. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And then he says, sin is a terrible thing. In verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's not any of us going to walk out into this year sinless. We, ha- we rub elbows with sin all the time. Sin is ever around us. And sometimes sin gets inside. I like that dog girl that says, all the water in the world can't sink a ship unless it gets inside. All the sin in the world can't sink you, can't dirty you unless you let it get inside of you. But that's our problem. We live all around it all the time and it swirls like swirling waves of an ocean. And sometimes it overwhelms us and it just gets inside and it makes us rock and reel. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As we walk out into the unknown courses of 1986, may we walk fully aware that sin is a monster, it's a tyrant. It would pounce upon you in the least likely moment and take you down, down, down to the life of waste and destruction. So what are we gonna do with sin? What are we gonna do with it? It's a present thing. It's here all the time, it's the reason Jesus came. Listen, if there were no sin, Jesus would not have come about. If there were no sin, Paul said, here's what to do. Uh, John said, here's what to do about your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now he's talking to Christians, talking to God's people who've been overwhelmed in the schedules and roads of life. He says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Sin is universal. Sin is a monster. Sin is a tyrant. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, that, that little word confess doesn't mean just to say, well, God, I sinned. Or God, you saw me. Or we come at the end of the day and say, now, Lord, I did this and this. And I cussed back there earlier in the day. And, and Lord, I was dishonest about this. And Lord, I did this and so on. God already knows all that. To confess our sins, the word confess in its original definition means, in in Greek, means to agree with God about this. I agree with God about this. God, that's a terrible thing. That's an ugly thing. You know, every once in a while we have young people who come along and say, well, the preacher's always preaching against this and that and the other. And sometimes their parents take up for them and they say, yeah, he ought, to, ought not to always be harping on things and so on, talking about how ugly things are and so on. Well, I'll tell you, when you do that, you're acknowledging that you're not confessing your sin. 
Because when you confess sin, you acknowledge to God that your sin is terrible. It stinks to high heaven and you hate it. That's what we're to do with sin. Whether it's in our family, a lot of sins in families. Children disobeying mom and dad, dishonoring mom and dad. Husband not faithful to wife, wife not faithful to husband. Or even in most faithful homes, sin gets in and breaks fellowship. And you argue and grumble and fuss all the time. And those children have to grow up hearing that all the time. And what causes that? You say, well, I've just got argumentative personality. No, what causes that is sin. Sin. Selfishness. And when we confess our sin, we confess our selfishness and say, God, you hated it and I want to hate it too. I don't hate it as much as you do, but I want to. And so I confess to God my sin. That's the first person I need to. But really, before we ever confess our sin to God, you know who else we need to confess our sin to? We need to confess it to ourselves. Lots of times we go boiling through life and we don't think we've done anything wrong. We don't think this is sin. We'll never get to confess it to God until we confess it to ourselves. Acknowledge to ourselves this thing was wrong. Just sit down and have a little talk with yourself. I think that's one reason the Lord tells us we need to pray in private, in a closet. We need to get by ourselves a lot of times. Just take stock, look into our own lives, and ask God about us. Weigh ourselves in the light of the Bible and uh, Jesus. And so we confess our sins to ourselves. And then we confess our sins to God. But there's somebody else we need to confess to. If I've wounded any soul today, if I've caused one foot to go astray, if I've walked in mine own willful way, dear Lord, forgive. But I need to go to the person that I've wronged. Ask them to forgive me. A lot of times we do the first two things. We confess it to ourselves. We tell God all about it. And then we lock it away and we never go to that one we've wronged. Now, frankly, there are some sins for which there's no restitution. You know, if I hate Jim Yates, can't stand the face, his face, don't, don't like him at all, but he never knows it. He doesn't know it. Nobody else knows it. I know it. So one day I say, well, I've got to confess my sin. So I go up to Jim and say, Jim, I've hated you all your life. How do you, you think that makes him feel? Is that the way it ought to be done? Of course not. He doesn't need to be burdened with that. I need to take that thing to God. But if I've done something wrong against him and I can make it right, then I need to make it right. Sin to be confessed needs to be confessed to ourselves, acknowledged, confessed to God, agree with him about it, and then where it can be made right confess to the individual we've wronged. Have you ever had the guts? That's not a good word, is it? Have you ever had the fortitude, the courage, the grace to go to somebody you wronged and say, look, it may have been a long time ago. I'm really sorry I did that. And I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to go on with it. I, 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 I'm just sorry. 
That's about all you can do. If you stole some money, give it back to him. If you stole a reputation, you can't give it back to him. All you can do is just say, I'm sorry. There's some sins for which there's no restitution, but you can still make it right. And as we go into this 1986 year, God grant that we shall go with a heart that says, Lord, I hate sin. And when it comes, I'm going to acknowledge it in my own heart and ask you to forgive me. I'm going to tell you all about it. And if I've wronged somebody else, I'm going to go ask them to forgive me. Sometimes we inadvertently hurt people. Not very many plan to have accidents. Uh, somebody was telling me the other day about a guy that just backed right at, just backed right into a brand new car. How do you think he meant to do that? Of course he didn't mean. Nobody in his right mind would back into a brand new car. He didn't mean to do that. And so that guy got out and cussed him out and swore at him and so on. And, uh, and you know what this guy did? With sincere tears in his eyes, he said, Friend, I'm really sorry I did that. And I have some insurance and I'm going to get it right. But I want to tell you, I'm really sorry I did that. How many times do we do that in life? Go to somebody we've wronged whether it's accidental or purpose, and just say, I'm sorry. Whether bound, what kind of a person do you want to be in 1986? Do you want to be somebody that's filled with self or somebody that's constantly giving to others? Giving and giving and giving until there's no more to give. Until one day you hear from Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, if you're not saved, you've never given your heart to Jesus, you'll never hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You'll never hear it because forever and forever you'll be separated from God in hell. But God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants everyone to get saved and to be on his way to heaven and to live a godly, spirit-filled, joy-filled life here. And I want to tell you, that is your inheritance today. You can have joy and peace and purpose and pardon and provision and a home in heaven. And you can enjoy it while you're doing it. You don't have to go through life mulish face, long over. You can have optimism because you're on the winning side. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And we can go on serving God. I dare you to do that. May we pray, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. With our hearts humbled before God, I wonder if there's somebody here today who would say, Jesus, I need you. I don't want to put you off any longer. I want to trust you as my Savior and my Lord. Would you say that to him? And invite him into your heart to be your Lord. Would you do it? Our Father, we thank you for the goodness of God. We're so grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place today. And we pray that Jesus would be crowned with glory and honor as someone comes to know the Lord and trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please.
in a moment. We're going to sing what number? 249. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Listen to this. How do you want to go through 1986? Do you want to go with your faith anchored in Jesus, trusting in the Lord with all your heart? You can. If you'll just let down the weight of your anchor in Christ, say, by the grace of God, I'm going to trust in Jesus, and I'm going to serve him and live for him. Someone here has already been saved. You need to come and say, I want to follow Jesus in baptism. There may be some in this room who have not, not been saved. You, you've heard the word of God a lot of times, and God has spoken to your heart. And you need to come on this first Sunday of the new year and say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I don't want to put it off any longer. I want to ask you to do that now. And as God speaks to your heart about any other matter, would you come while we begin to sing, who will step out first for the king? Will you come?